Bookstack with Richard Aldous, the Books and Ideas podcast brought to you by AmericanPurpose.com. You can check our website for all the latest commentary and analysis, and it's where you can sign up for our regular live Zoom events, including on July 21st, Will Marshall on Democrats Then, Now and Tomorrow. Coming up on the show today, Gillian Tett, chair of the US editorial board at the Financial Times and author of the new book, Anthrovision, a new way to see in business and life. Uh, Gillian, welcome to Bookstack. Great to be with you. Congratulations on the book. So what is Anthrovision? Well, Anthrovision is basically a new way to see in business and life that calls for us to all adopt a little bit of culture shock in our lives. Now, that might sound really weird because human beings are all hardwired to run away from culture shock. But as an anthropologist, I'm trained to believe that if you try to think yourself into the mind and lives of people who are a bit different from you, not only do you get empathy from another point of view, which we desperately need right now in a world that's both globalized and polarized, but also you can flip the lens and look at yourself with much clearer sight. Because there's this wonderful Chinese proverb that a fish can't see water. We can't see the assumptions that shape our lives for good or bad, the cultural parts of our lives, because we inherit it and we tend to ignore that. But if we jump out of our fishbowl, then you get a better sense of not only what other fish, other cultures are thinking, but also you get a chance to look back and see your own water in which you're swimming each day much more clearly. And frankly, we, we need to do that very badly now as we come out of the pandemic. And it's, it's an interesting backstory for you as a financial journalist. You have this PhD in anthropology from Cambridge before you switch to the Financial Times. And you have this great story at the beginning where one of your journalistic colleagues at the beginning of your career uh, asks you what you were working on. And when you tell him, he says, what on earth is the point of that? And in some ways, this book is the answer to that question. Yes, absolutely. Well, one of the things that inspired me to this book is I spent the last 25 years as a journalist with the Financial Times talking to politicians and business leaders and economists and financiers and all these people with grown-up jobs. And they'd often turn around and say to me, you just had this really weird background. How come you're so weird? What has it got to do with what your day job? And my weirdness was that I did a PhD in cultural anthropology before I became a journalist. And normally people think that the type of thing I studied, which was a place called Soviet Tajikistan, just north of Afghanistan, um, and I was studying marriage rituals, people think that has nothing to do with the world of Wall Street or the White House or the C-suite at big companies and things like that. And what I've spent years of my life trying to tell people is that actually we're all human, we're all tribal, we all engage in rituals and practices which seem weird to others. We all have creation myths, whether we're bankers or techies or Tajik villagers. And the same set of skills that I use to look at the Tajik villagers all those years ago for my PhD are incredibly insightful for looking at Wall Street and Washington or anywhere else. And in fact, I use that to predict the 2008 financial crisis and predict the tech clash the backlash against tech companies, 
and the victory of Donald Trump in the 2016 election. Yeah, and one of the nice things about the book is that you openly acknowledge that you live as part of the global elite yourself working at the FT. But but this anthrovision seems to be one of the ways in which you try to, to keep that in check for yourself as a journalist. Well, every single human being is hobbled by tunnel vision and by prejudice. You know, we can't ignore that or pretend it doesn't exist, no matter how wise you might think you are. You know, we're all creatures of our own environment, which we inherit, not just in the physical sense, but culturally from the world around us. So the first step to getting some anthrovision and frankly being wiser is to recognize how you are prejudiced as a result of your background. And I am, as you can hear from my accent, British. Um, I have been part of the global elite, frankly, for most of my life. Um, I've had a by most people's standards on the planet, a very privileged background. Um, and so that obviously colors how I think about the world. More subtly, the fact I've been educated to read a Roman alphabet, which works by having your mind train um, symbols in a one-directional fashion, in a very selective way on a page, shapes the way that I look and think at any scene or landscape and process information. And again, that's a bias I inherit which is fine. I'm not saying it's good or bad, but it's just different from the way that some other people process information. So you need to recognise that. And you outline three main ideas behind AnthroVision, that it gives us empathy for strangers and strangeness, that it gives us empathy for others, but also helps us understand ourselves. And it also helps us with our own blind spots and those of others. So how do those three work together for you as a journalist? Well, when I talk about this idea of trying to get empathy for others and look back at yourself, it all sounds terribly abstract. So I like to tell stories. And my story, which is a narrative backbone of the book, is that I went off to Tajikistan in 1989 and spent um, just over a year living up in the mountains as a Tajik girl with a Tajik family, um, really trying to get to grips with a completely alien culture that initially seemed very strange, very weird, pretty scary to me because I couldn't make head or tail of it. And in the course of doing my research, I realized that many of the prejudices I'd arrived with were wrong. And I began to get a sense of empathy for how the Tajiks were living. Then I went back to the UK and by a series of accidents, joined the Financial Times and spent years of my life writing about finance and business and markets and economics, and then subsequently about politics too. And I tried to flip the lens and use the same skills I'd used to analyze a Tajik village to look at the city of London and to look at financial markets and Wall Street um, and then many parts of the American business community. And so just to give you a tiny example of how I did that, um, back in 2005, I went to a big investment banking conference and talking about a new area of financial innovation, credit derivatives. And I realized that actually the tribal rituals around an investment banking conference are very similar to the kind of marriage rituals I was studying in Tajikistan. So I used the same skill set to deconstruct them and saw that the financiers creating credit derivatives were hobbled with tunnel vision, which meant they couldn't see the consequences of the terrible risks that they were taking. And on the back of that, I said, you know, this actual credit derivative stuff, people are talking about it with great excitement. It looks pretty dangerous to me. And what's most dangerous of all is that the financiers are so tribal, so inward looking, they can't even see how dangerous it is themselves. 
Yeah, I think you refer to that as the Bloomberg Village. In other words, people people who have access to the Bloomberg terminals who are, are their own kind of strange world. But it, it did, in, in that chapter of the book, you talk about how many people denounced you for this. They said you were scaremongering, that you didn't, perhaps you didn't understand quite what was going on. But that again, you emphasise this sense of how bankers are using social rituals, myths, symbols to reinforce that elite globalized culture? Well, the reality is that um, anthropologists often make people uncomfortable because they call out all types of unseen contradictions uh, that people don't want to acknowledge. Um, They call out the ways that we don't just fool others, but fool ourselves. And that's understandably not a particularly comfortable thing. So when I started saying, well, actually, the bankers have got this creation mythology around credit derivatives which is supposed to make markets a lot more liquid. Liquefaction was the buzzword. And they claim that's going to be good for all of humanity. But there's several things wrong with that idea, one of which is that they were claiming the markets were going to be more liquid, but the instruments they were creating couldn't be traded, so they weren't actually very liquid at all. Um, They were claiming that these innovations would make the system less risky, but the ways they were spreading risk about was actually introducing new risks into the system. Um, And they claimed they were serving people, but there wasn't any discussion about the end users in all of the investment banking conference rituals. Um, So when I pointed this out, of course, naturally, people didn't like it very much. Um, Because the reality is, as Upton Sinclair, that great novelist, once said, it's very hard to get a man or a woman to understand when their job depends on not understanding. And the reality was that before 2008, there were very few people who had much incentive to point out the intellectual contradictions in the creation myth that was driving Wall Street. And there is a nice little moment of vindication for you in the book when uh, Alan Greenspan, the uh, former chairman of the Fed, uh, comes and asks you for reading advice on uh, what he should be reading in anthropology. Well, one of the strangest moments of my life was Alan Greenspan, who had, I'd always thought was something of an anti-anthropologist because he loved economic models, um, came up to me after the 2008 financial crisis and stopped me at a conference and said, have you got any good books about anthropology? And I was stunned and thrilled um, and also quite impressed that he had had the um, intellectual courage to try and re-examine some of the views that had driven him during most of his career. And frankly, that's rare. I mean, the number of times I've been caught up in strong opinions which have been turned out to be wrong and have been slow to admit that is very, very numerous. Anyway, the reason he wanted to know about anthropology was really only for half of what anthropology can do, which is to understand other cultures. At the time, Alan Greenspan was very baffled by the behavior of the Greeks in relation to the Eurozone debt crisis. Um, So I tried to explain to him that anthropology wasn't just about understanding weird others. It was also about understanding the weirdness in ourselves. And there's lots of good anthropology books that I write about in my book, um, which have been studying, you know, the tribal behaviors of central bankers, the tribal behaviors of financial um, whiz kids on Wall Street. So I suggested he should read those as well. But I don't think he did. I think he mostly wanted to try and look at the Greeks. 
I mean, you talk about Alan Greenspan learning from his mistakes, and that that's something that you talk about in the book as well. You you say that you made a mistake on how you called Brexit in 2016 because you extrapolated your own feelings onto uh, those of, of public opinion. But then you go on to say that, you know, you learned the lesson of that for the uh, the US election in that same year. And the phrase which really stands out is that stop laughing and start listening. Yes, well, when I say I've learned the lesson, um, I learned it once, but it's got a, it's a lesson I have to keep relearning over and over and over again. It's a bit like somebody saying, you know, I want to get fit. I've got fit. And you go, great. Yeah, well, keep staying fit. Because, you know, anthrovision is not a one-off magic wand. You have to keep deploying it. And in my case, um, I realized in the 2016 Brexit vote that I'd been incredibly arrogant and blinkered in terms of how I looked at the British electorate. Because I had led a pretty globalized life and I'd been in Europe a lot, to me it seemed obvious that being inside the EU was a good thing. And I just assumed everyone else would think like I would. That's a kind of one-on-one mistake we all make as humans. And when the vote came out, I thought, wow, I have forgotten my anthropology training. Um, I was living in America at the time, so I'd actually been quite distanced from the British electoral scene. But on the back of that, I went out and spent the next few months really trying to listen to voters different parts of America and walks of life in relation to Donald Trump and quickly became very aware that the way that the educated journalists who are mostly elite saw Donald Trump was very different from many, many other voters. And that's one thing that led me to write columns saying that actually Donald Trump could win. It's also one of the things that led you to pro wrestling. Absolutely. Well, one of my friends who came from a non-elite background said to me, if you want to understand Donald Trump, you need to go to a wrestling ring. And I was going, what? Because you know, most journalists don't actually have much contact with wrestling. Um, and as a British person, I hadn't at all. But I realized from talking to people that actually, although we journalists assumed that shows like The Apprentice on television were the main way that the voters knew about Donald Trump, in fact, probably most of them knew him better through his role in the wrestling world, which had been on television as well. So I went along to a wrestling match and learned several anthropological lessons. Firstly, that sometimes there's no substitute for physically being in a place. Having an embodied experience where you use all five of your senses to actually experience something that people different from you are experiencing is really powerful. And it me that Donald Trump's performative style in the election campaigns aggressive displays, the manufactured stage-managed fights, the name-calling, things like Little Mark Rubio, the whipping up of the crowds, the chants, all of that was taken lock, stock and barrel from the wrestling ring. He transposed it from the arena of sports into politics. And the thing that was fascinating was that people who hadn't been to a wrestling ring and didn't understand how important it was as a franchise couldn't really understand the extraordinary appeal of Donald Trump or how he was ringing almost Pavlovian um, bells in the minds of many voters, but also how they weren't taking what he said literally. They kind of knew it was partly for show. Um, rather, they were just you know, applauding the overarching style. And that, again, was something that journalists who are trained to deconstruct things with text and listen to what people say literally were quite badly placed to try and interpret. 
It's obviously we've all been living through the pandemic in the the last year and year and a bit, and you have some really arresting examples from the earlier Ebola outbreak in Sierra Leone, where you apply uh, anthrovision. I was particularly struck by the example of the phones. How we think of phones in the West as a very private possession, but that is not true in all parts of the world, and that kind of mistake can lead to catastrophic policy errors. Well, one of the messages of the book is that you can't beat a pandemic just with um, medical science um, or even just with data science. You need behavioral science as well. And people learned that eventually in battling the Ebola pandemic in West Africa. It took them a long time. Um, initially, there was an attempt to use medical science, i.e. the brilliance of all the doctors, to fix the Ebola pandemic or epidemic. Um, and originally, there was a team in Boston who were very hopeful that using um, techniques to track the cell phone signals of people, but also help to um, reveal to people where the epidemic was moving and how diseases were spreading and to take preemptive action. And it's a classic example of making the mistake of thinking that everyone else thinks and acts like you do. Because in the West, if you have a cell phone signal, that usually indicates that that's a person. Um, some people carry two cell phones, but you know a cell phone is usually attached to a specific individual. In West Africa, by contrast, cell phones are passed around amongst people. And so somebody can have a cell phone for a bit and then hand it over to somebody else, it gets borrowed, et cetera, et cetera. So you can't make the assumption that a cell phone is a person. So you can go and track the cell phones all you like if you can get signals, which is also another problem with West Africa. But if you can get the signals, you can track the cell phones moving, but you can't assume that that's equivalent to people, even though you can probably assume that in a country like America or the UK. And it's interesting how others are beginning to recognise how these different kinds of knowledge need to be put together. You quote Jack Dorsey, the founder of Twitter, saying that if he was inventing Twitter now, he would employ social scientists as well as computer scientists. Absolutely. And he's really saying that because he wants to both understand um, the social consequences of what gets created and how social media can actually exacerbate tribalism in a very harmful way. Um, so to his credit, Dorsey now says he wants to understand that. But he also wants to understand how the tribal behaviors of the computer scientists and coders and techies in themselves can also create both good and bad effects. So one of the things that's really needed these days is for companies to not just use anthropologists to study their customers, but to flip the lens and look back at themselves too. And final question, Gillian, you, you end the book with a plea to academic anthropologists to inject themselves more aggressively into the broader conversation. Um, is, is that something that is essential for anthrovision to succeed? Or do you, do you think in some ways the division might be a benefit? Well, I think that basically one of the problems with anthropology is that it's been in a bit of an academic ghetto. Um, they're almost set a tr uh, like a tribe apart. And compared to, say, economists who've had huge impact on public policymaking or psychologists who due to the work of brilliant people like Danny Kahneman or behavioral economic psychologists and things like that, like Richard Taylor, Kath Sunstein, they've had impact on policy too. Anthropologists have been pretty marginalized. That's partly because they have suffered from this Indiana Jones stereotype, which is completely wrong these days. 
Um, but also because they've often been quite shy and reluctant to push themselves into the mainstream of public policy debate, which I think is a pity. So one of the things my book does is to really call on anthropologists to engage more with the wider world, to collaborate with other disciplines like computer science and economics and finance and business and medicine and law um, and things like that, um, to be willing to actually stand up and raise their voices and to get their influence basically plugged into policy debate as we try and build back better. Because as I argue in the book, a world that's drowning in artificial intelligence, big data, economic models and corporate balance sheets needs to widen the lens, look at the world in a holistic way, realize the benefit of studying culture and embrace another type of AI, what I call anthropology intelligence, just to provide the kind of checks and balances we need to try and build back better, not just for companies or countries, but for individuals and their households too. Gillian, congratulations again, and thanks for joining us on Bookstack. Thanks very much indeed for having me on your show. So the book is Anthrovision, A New Way to See in Business and Life. It's written by my guest, Gillian Tett, and published by Avid Reader Press. That's it from us this week. Don't forget to check our website, AmericanPurpose.com, and to leave us a review on your podcast app. The show is produced by Damir Marusik. Do join us again next week. But for now, this is me, Richard Alder, saying thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.